Esther chapters 1 and 2. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces, were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zetha and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena and Memican the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memican replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she, 
Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of his kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with the Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's place. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning return to another part of the harem, to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman whom Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther, more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins.
So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals, in the presence of the king. Thank you, Cam. Well done. Long reading, but a good story. Uh, Tonight, I want to start by pitching to you a metaphor, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, The metaphor for you to evaluate is uh, snakes and ladders. Hopefully, you all know how that works. Uh, You know that uh, you roll a dice and you go up a ladder and you kind of keep going up, and that's how you win the game. Uh, But there's also always the chance that you roll a dice, you land on a snake, and you land back where you started. And that's the difficulty of the game that you could go up or you could go back down, that despite every step you take forward, it could be two steps back, three steps back, right to where you began. That's the metaphor, lock it in your mind. The question is, does that describe the history of God's people? That, that no matter where we are in, in society or, or culture or gospel influence, no matter how far we get, Do we just come back where we started once again? Uh, Tonight we're starting a new series in Esther and uh, we're digging into it for a few weeks. And I think if the people that first read it or who were there in those days uh, played the ancient game of climbing sticks and slippery lizards, uh, 100% they would have been tempted to say, yes, that metaphor does describe our history. Uh, For a Jew living in that time... Uh, their understanding of how their people began was exile. Uh, Abraham, the father of Israel, despite having been promised a great land and, and many offspring and God's blessing, his entire life was as a sojourner, an exile. He lived in Israel but never owned it. He worked there but never ruled it. He raised his family there but was always outnumbered in it. And the thing is, as, as we come to the end of Israel's history, In Esther, 1,500 years later, God's people are still no further. Despite the rise of prophets like Moses and kings like David, they don't control the land. And they bow to the Persians, with most of them still in exile. And I wonder if uh, we feel like that as well as Christians... That, that two and a half thousand years after Esther, we're still no better off. Churches are declining, workplaces 
and campuses are hostile. People are unbelieving, leaving the faith, deconstructing. Feels like snakes and ladders. One step forward, ten steps back. I think that the key question behind Esther is, has God got us? When we're at uni or work or school, when we're just trying to keep our heads down because of the cultural pressure, has God got me? Has he got us? So to answer that, uh, come with me. Let's look at Esther chapter 1 and 2. As we walk through uh, these two chapters, we're going to see two portraits, uh, two portraits of what life appears to be like. And the first portrait in chapter 1 is a portrait of power. And the portrait belongs to a man named Xerxes, the king of Persia. I was visiting a friend on a farm recently, and one of the things that farmers just love to do uh, is point out all their fences. So it's kind of a pastime of theirs. Uh, you know, you go up, you stand on their tallest hill, and they point out to you their, their paddocks and their windmills and their roads and their dams and then their fences, their kind of boundaries. And, you know, I would totally do that with my urban three-by-one, but it would just take too long, so uh, we'll move on. Uh, but as we're introduced to Xerxes, the king of Persia, we get a similar thing. Have a look at verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. The only difference here is there are no fences. If you took a map of the known world at the time, Xerxes owned it all. Uh, Here's the modern list of countries that he owned. Ready? It's going to be quick. India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Sudan, and of course, who could forget, the northern portion of Greece. He owned it all. And the scene that is being set for us, therefore, is an empire that you can't leave. It's inescapable. And that's our world today. Full of power. Nowhere to run. We're stuck here. Now, the thing about Persia, though, is it's also impressive. And in verse 4 and 5, the king wants to let everyone know. Uh, have a look at verse 4. For a full 180 days... Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. I think the appropriate analogy here is a Trump rally being held in the lobby of a Trump hotel. It is all about the show. It's all about the bling. And you can picture it, right? Uh, Linen hangings everywhere. Uh, Marble pillars stretching to the roof. Mosaic pavements lighting up the ground. My personal favourite is the couches made of gold. That's an interesting take on a soft metal. But it is a party, right? Uh, Everyone gets a personalised goblet... Drinks are served to your liking. You get 180 days to see it, seven days to taste it. It's incredible. And the point is, 
if you join the empire, you can have it all. And I wonder if you've felt like that recently in our world. You take a, a, scroll, a stroll through Northbridge and you will see things the world wants you to desire. Walk down St George's Terrace, they will pay you to join them. Take, take a tour through Shenham Park, you will see marble pillars, you will see mosaic pavements, you will find fancy linen sheets. And our world, our empire is saying, if you want it, you can have it. From the least to the greatest, all you have to do is join our side. But there is a catch, because the empire is dangerous. It's dangerous, and have a look at verse 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine... He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Habona, Bigtha, Abigatha, Zetha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. After dark, this is what the empire is like. The king is drunk, he's reckless, so he sends in the dogs to catch his prey. And it's an incredible betrayal. The first lady, the supposed pride of his life, an object for his friends to ogle, a kind of trophy for him to, to parade and impress. And it's, it's all about appearances in this world. Come and see what I have. And yet notice, it's not just her. Did you notice who had to bring her in? Seven eunuchs, seven boys castrated at birth. Historians reckon that they had 500 a year prepared for the king. This is a portrait of dangerous, selfish, reckless, abusive power aimed at others, men and women. That is, until Vashti says, No. And it is excellent. Uh, Just think about it. There's been 180 days of boasting, uh, a week full of drunken feasting. Men are jostling for the seats. The greatest show has come to town. The lights dim. the The drums roll. And guess who walks in? Seven eunuchs. Some show for the fellas, eh? Uh, You can imagine them all kind of shuffling over, not one, not two, but seven, and they whisper into his ear, "Ah, Sir, she said no. It's embarrassing. And I wonder if, if there's just a little hint here that this is how fragile the world really is. That no matter how powerful and invincible and dangerous the world seems, they can never have your will. They can never change your mind. And as Christians, you might like to ponder what that might mean for us for a second. But what does the king do? 
Uh, it's an absolute disaster. It's a shamozzle, to use the technical word. And so all of a sudden, every man at the party is texting his wife. Uh, Honey, uh, please don't watch the news tonight. It's just rumours that you're hearing. Nothing to see, nothing to copy, certainly nothing to imitate. I'll be home soon. I've just been at the shops getting you flowers. That's where I've been all day. For all their power, they are totally insecure. And so in verse 19 and 20, what do they do? They just legislate everything. That's all they've got. Vashti is is disposed of, an edict is proclaimed throughout all the empire that women must respect their husbands and Vashti will never see the king again. And do you see how ironic it is? The queen, who didn't want to see him, is told in parliament, you can't go and see him. Good one. And then the news that has embarrassed the king so much, he tells the entire empire. You can just imagine some little village in far-flung India or Kush. They've got no idea what's going on. And some poor bloke gets a knock at the door. Oh, hello, sir. We're just here to tell you that the king's wife doesn't respect him at all. Have you heard about that? We're here to tell you. How's your wife? Is she home? Can she take our survey? It's laughable. All this power, this empire... And we're left smirking, poking our tongues. It's a joke. Uh, But as we step back for a moment, it's worth pointing out this isn't a story about Vashti's actions. You know, as as Westerners, we love her. She's like this kind of proto-feminist, Beyonce super queen. She's excellent. But that's not the point. Uh, We're never told whether what she did was right or wrong. We're never told what her motives are. What we're really told about is the portrait of a raw, drunken, rampaging power and how it all came undone because of a poor, subjugated woman. The question we're asking is, has God got us? And the answer here is that when it comes to the world's power, Appearances are not what they seem. All undone by one word from one woman. So that's the first portrait. Uh, Chapter one, a portrait of power. And if portrait one is a portrait of power, then chapter two is a portrait of weakness. Portrait of weakness. Uh, One of the interesting things about the way that uh, chapter 2 begins is that it doesn't begin with the feelings of the victim, but of the culprit. Uh, In verse verse 1, Xerxes kind of remembers that he got rid of his wife and now he's kind of lonely. And so his his attendants decide on a plan to search the kingdom for beautiful women so that he can take his pick. And in verse 5, we just get this sickly line that this appeals to the king. Kind of some sick version of Xerxes got talent or Persia's got talent. Uh, But it's worth pointing out that while the search is about beauty, the contest is actually about sex. What's going on here is that the best of the best will be found, the king will try them out, and it's vulgar to say, but in bed, so that he, the culprit, can decide who he's pleased with and who 
will be queen. It's a, it's a vulnerable time to be a woman in the empire. And that brings us to Esther. Have a look at verse 5. Uh, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Uh, Here, finally, is a, a girl that the king needs, a beautiful figure. A body to please. Uh, But notice, it's not her gender that sticks out in that paragraph. It's her religion. Uh, Here she is. She's in exile from Jerusalem with her cousin Mordecai, a Jewish girl uh, stuck with a Persian name. And so she belongs to the people of God. Uh, You know, despite our Western lens that that kind of, it, it seems like a story about men and women, it's actually a story about the world against the people of God. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, in Romans 2, we read that a true Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly. So it's not just a story about ethnic Jews, it's a story about spiritual Jews, believers, people of faith. And so this this portrait of Esther, it's actually a portrait of all of God's people, then and now, men and women, It's a a portrait of you and me in the world. Weak, exploited. Pawns to be used. Objects to be exploited again. When it comes to our world, that's what we are. Uh, As the story continues uh, and Esther enters into the king's harem, notice that her story starts to head in two diverging paths. You know, on the one hand, things are going kind of well. In verse 9, she meets Haggai, the servant in charge of the king's women, and she pleases him, wins his favour, she wins the day. She gets special food, special treatment, seven servants, the best room in the house, and for a second it looks luxurious. She's got all this stuff. But on the other hand, you can't help but feel on the other path that because she's a Jew, she's in danger. We see that in verse 10. It says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. And, you know, we're not, we're not told why, but it doesn't take much to guess. And so what we have here is two paths, two pictures of the experience of being in the world as a person of God. That the world appearances matter. You know, if you look the part, if you can play the role, if you can act the part, you'll do well. But then, if you belong to God and you call on His name, then you will be hurt. That's what it means to be in exile. One Peter says that we, as Christians, are exiles and strangers away from our heavenly home. And while the world might like bits of us. They will not like it all. It will be dangerous when they see us and they figure out who we are. And it's in that context where Esther is taken right 
into the heart of the empire. Have a look at verse 13. Uh, And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned by name. Uh, Again, kind of to Western readers like us, the idea that she would never have to see the king again, that sounds like a big win. Uh, Tick, tick. Uh, But that's not actually how the ancient world worked. Uh, In those days, once a woman slept with the king, she was his. And therefore, no matter what happened, she could never leave. She could could never marry anyone else. No other man would ever touch her. Uh, And so her choices were either his wicked love or her terrible loneliness. And that, that was it. And there's Esther, about to go into his room. And all she could think about was, is he going to be pleased? What's going to happen with the rest of my life? It's it's a terrible set of choices. Weak and vulnerable is all she could be. And in verse 17, the king was pleased and she was made queen. Uh, Do most of you know the story of Henry VIII, the the king in England in the 1500s? Uh, And he's the guy that had wife after wife after wife, queen after queen after queen. Uh, The order was pretty simple. You can memorise history right here. Uh, Married, divorced, beheaded. Married, divorced, beheaded. That's all it was. And I bring up Henry and his wives because it's a good example of queens that had no fairy tale. And it was no better for Esther. Yes, she had a royal crown on her head, and yet just imagine how heavily that must have weighed on her mind. At the end of the chapter comes this strange little story about Mordecai, uh, Esther's cousin, in verse 21 to 23. Uh, There's some kind of threat to the king's life. Mordecai overhears it. Maybe he's sitting at his desk, and and he, he hears the news. And so he tells Esther, and together they save the day, they save the king. And did you notice that no one cares? Uh, it goes in this record book, which would have been this big. No one's ever going to read it. Uh, and that's all that happens. He's just this kind of another example of a weak tool used by the empire, just like his cousin. And that's the portrait of this chapter. The people of God in their weakness, used and abused. And the question is, has God got us. Uh, Some application will help us bring this together. One of the things we're programmed to do in life, uh, it seems, is to be intimidated by power. You know, you you go to work and, and you just know if they knew what you believed, they could fire you in an instant. You go to class and you think, if I, if I actually spoke freely, all these people would defriend me. You post online or or you don't post because you know just how much power the social machine can carry. Uh, In the face of power, we're intimidated. But then kind of paradoxically, we're also really impressed. Uh, We see the power that the world can give. Uh, 
And we think, oh, if I just take the right job and if I have the right look and if I meet the right power, then uh, right people, then that power can be mine too. We're impressed. We, we want to be part of the world. We want, to, we want to feel it. We don't want to be left behind. We, we want to have what they have and we want to use their tools to get it. But what Esther is trying to teach us is that appearances are deceiving. Because he's the most powerful ruler in the world and he can't even get his own wife to do what he wants. It's interesting, as you read through Esther, he's, he's so incompetent that he never actually makes a decision for himself. He always needs his cronies to kind of help him out, give him an idea, a suggestion. This powerful man, and Esther just wants us to laugh at him. To, to look at power and, and the empire and to, to know that they just aren't what they appear. What they offer isn't invincible. It isn't even that good. But then we come to these two weaklings. These two weak little Jews. No land, no, no sense of belonging, barely any family left. Vulnerable, at risk objectified, ignored, used, abused, scared to let anyone know who they truly are. And yet even then, as the story goes on, you've got to wonder, are appearances what they seem? I mean, just think about it. There's a, isn't it remarkable that there is suddenly a Jewish woman at the heart of power? Isn't it remarkable that a Jewish man has just saved the empire? And don't you just start to wonder, is there another character in this story? Is, is there actually another power, a deeper power? A, a power that somehow you can never see, but you can't help but notice. And don't you just start to wonder whether it might be the weak, the subjugated, the helpless, who have that power on their side. Don't you wonder whether maybe it would just be better to be like them rather than be like the world? A Jewish royal in a dangerous empire, a Jewish saviour that no one wanted... Don't you think it sounds like a story that we know? A Jewish royal in a dangerous empire. A Jewish saviour that no one wanted. Sounds like the gospel. Sounds like the cross. And when it comes to weakness and power, appearances are not all that they seem. The message of Esther is that the loudest roar in the jungle comes from the lamb who was slain. Though shrouded in weakness, the cross that saves from death and grants life, that is power. God has totally got us. As we finish... One of the peculiar things about 
these first few chapters, is it's, it's never really clear if Esther or Mordecai have done the right thing. You know, they're obviously helpless and they're vulnerable, but if they were really faithful, why didn't they reveal who they were? Why didn't Esther uh, kind of follow in the path of Vashti? Why didn't she say no? Why didn't Mordecai do to help her? Why, why was the, the Persian king the only one he tried to save? And the book just never tells us. We never know whether they acted rightly or wrongly. We just, we just don't know. And I reckon that's the point. That they are weak. That they don't get everything right. That they don't always show bravery. They don't always show the power of their faith. And the point is it's in those moments when they're weak that God is showing his hand. Tomorrow when we, we go, to, to go to work or to uni or school, we're just not going to get everything right. We're, we're going to hide from the world. We're going to uh, cower from consequences. We're going to uh, hold our tongues when we should speak. We're going to speak when we should have held our tongues. We're going to be tempted by this empire that surrounds us. We're going to falter and fail and all but fall away. And Esther is saying, even in those moments, even in those moments, you can trust that God has totally got you. And we know that most truly because the loudest roar in the jungle is always the lamb who was slain. Amen.